welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. The Kinky Cast is heard in over 150 countries. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Today, we present episode 278, Rachel and Kieran, Kinky Science Makes the World Go Round. Recorded live at Frolicon. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com. Here's your host, Rachel and Kieran. Please call me Rachel. Um, I'm a psychologist here in town. I have a practice actually not really far from where we are. Um, and my practice is mostly our community, which is really amazing. I get to do the work that I love. So most of the clients that come to see me identify somewhere on the kinky, poly, queer, LGBTQIQ, or otherwise wanting to think outside the box spectrum, which is great. It means I get to talk to interesting and awesome minds all day. So I was giving a presentation, a a colleague asked me to come speak to her nursing class about sexual and gender diversity the other day. And they, bless their hearts, were all very like, they're like kind of wide-eyed and yeah. what, what's she going to talk about? She had prepared them very well. They didn't get too overwhelmed by anything I shared with them. But one of them asked me, she said, well, what do you mostly talk about with your clients? Like, what, what do people come to see you for? I think expecting to hear some really like hairy stories. And I looked at her and I went, oh, anxiety and depression, like every other psychologist on earth. And I explained that the reality of my practice is that most of my clients want to deal with their anxiety, their depression, maybe some relationship issues, but it's usually communication because most relationship issues are. And it doesn't really differ if I'm working with three people, four people, a dyad that's part of a larger poly family or part of a power dynamic relationship. I still do the work the exact same way, and it doesn't really change the issue at the heart of it. The work that I do looks exactly the same, except for the part where my clients are able to say to me, well, yeah, I'm in a DS relationship, or I'm in a 24-7 master-slave relationship, and my face does, really, tell me more about that. Instead of doing, insert variation of yucking on somebody else's yum, that could be... Uh, reaction from a therapist (laughs) and you can imagine how it would feel I mean I can imagine how it would feel to have that reaction from somebody that you're like okay I'm gonna start therapy I'm gonna have this trusting interaction with this new person and if one of the earlier things you tell or truer things that you tell them about yourself they go hmm even if it's just more than mild curiosity it really can push people away And I don't want to, you know, I think it's bad therapy to push people away when you're trying to develop this trust. Um, So, yeah, that's like I talk about my practice. It's really specialized. The work that I do isn't that specialized. It's my ability. I joke with my students that it's just don't be an asshole. Apparently, that's a special skill. I didn't know that. (laughs) So that's the work that I do. And I also happen to, um, maybe I should have put this slide first. Um, I'll share this with you uh, towards the end of the presentation. I'm also one of the co-leads on the um, American Psychological Association's Task Force on Consensual Non-Monogamy. So we're getting actual science 
Um, it's very exciting. I'm so proud of the group that I'm working with. Historically, the American Psychological Association has created guidelines for practice with, so there's a set of guidelines for practice with um, lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals. And it says things like responsible psychologists don't do conversion therapy because it hurts people, amongst many other things. That's my favorite of them because I like to take that one out and yell at people about it. So there's also a set of guidelines for practice with transgender and gender non-conforming individuals. And so our hope is that eventually we will create a set of guidelines for practice with consensual non-monogamy clients. But also there's going to be a lot of research and articles written about maybe how should your forms change so that people can reflect their families or their relationship orientation. It's really exciting. Um, if people are interested in it, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I'll flash up a QR code at the end. We're having a, we're getting a petition going right now. Basically, it's where people can just indicate like, hey, APA, we're out here and we care. Please keep doing this work. Um, so the reason I bring that up is it's related. I usually don't bring it up at the beginning. Like, um, I'm excited about this, but it's not the reason I'm here. But it's very related to the title of this and the content of this session, which is about how psychology's view of sexual variation and sexuality is and has changed. The other th caveat I want to give, I want to give everybody a chance to introduce themselves too. The other caveat I want to give is that um, if you haven't talked to the folks who are doing the science of BDSM stuff, talk to them as, oh, do I have any of those folks? Any of the folks who are doing the science of BDSM stuff? No? Okay. So there is, there was at one point this weekend, and I didn't get to go, uh, the folks who were doing uh, the more neuroscience side of BDSM research, at least one of them is here this weekend. If you haven't looked that up, and they have these great little pins, it's a beaker, and it's all roped up. It's great. I, I haven't gotten one yet. I need one. It's tied up. Because there's also a lot of interest in, you know, what's the neurochemistry? What's happening in these interactions, there's some great folks. I'm not going to address the neuroscience side so much because I have some content that's, you know, that's the stuff that I know really well, um, although I'm a neuroscience nerd as well. But if you have questions about that, I'll tell you what I do know. Whatever I don't, we'll go see if we can hunt that person down. There's a quick version and a longer version of this. Depends on how many questions we, we talk about. Um, there's a couple of reasons that I present on this because the changeover that, this, that I started talking about this particular information about it actually happened um, six years ago now. Um, in 2013, there was some information that was released by uh, a change that was made that I'll talk about that was really important, I think, to our community in a document that only a psych and science like psychologists read. And I thought it was really important to let the community know that that had happened. The other reason that I present on this or that I make sure to make myself visible, like the reason that my name, my real legal therapist name is on my badge is because I want people to know that I'm a therapist and that I am not green with purple spots and I don't have three heads and I'm also not following you around trying to check you into the psych ward. Because I live my life in a therapy bubble, right? I talk to other therapists all the time. Our normal is that we're going to talk about informed consent and we're going to talk about therapy and like we, we make psychology jokes and nobody gets them except nobody thinks we're funny except for us and that's okay we're used to it but it's very easy when you live your life in that world to forget that for a lot of people they've never met a therapist they've never been in therapy and sure it's a great concept but they've never known anybody who is so what is like everybody keeps saying this idea this thing like therapy is a good idea what is it what do they do it's not like a doctor where you go and they do an exam and they give you a pill and they send you home. 
what happens? It's like a, a secret. Nobody knows. Um, and so part of why I do this is because I want to make myself visible and therapy visible. It's like, ask me questions. Ask me how to find a therapist. Ask me what's going to happen in the first session. Ask me how to find a kinky therapist. I can't tell you for sure how to find a kinky therapist, although I do know a lot of them. There's a lot of us, but I'm not going to out anybody. I can't tell you how to find a kink-friendly therapist or at least how to try. And I think it's worth it because there are people that you can, you can educate. Like my therapist, for example, didn't really know anything about poly or kink, but I happened to meet that person long before I needed to talk about that. So she's going to come along with me on the journey because I've had her for a long time. Um, and she's great and she was able to handle it. But if she had been somebody who couldn't, that's a hard thing, right? I might not have wanted to go back or to try or to make the effort. And guess what's the best way to get somebody to not do something again? Give them a bad first experience. Hello, it's Frolicon. What's the best way to get people to want to not do something again? Give them a bad experience, right? Unfortunately, it will happen to somebody here this weekend. That's why we teach classes and try to make sure it doesn't happen. So, so any particular questions that people have about psychology or psychology and kink at all? If not, I mean, if it, if it springs to mind, just interrupt me and I'll tell you. So, so I'll tell you this information and then, you know, if we're done early, I can, I'm happy to answer any questions, always. Okay, so one of the things I talk about, I teach abnormal psychology. It's the worst titled class in the world because fuck normal. Yes, I said that on tape, fuck normal. Normal is an idea, it's not, there's no such thing as normal. Um, my normal might be the weirdest thing in the world to you, and that might be about how it's normal for me to drink my tea, right? Normal is a statistical idea. It's where people clump in groups, but that can't exist without outliers. Right? We talk about this like normal court. If anybody's been tortured by statistics, I'm sorry that I'm giving you flashbacks. It's not my area of love. Like if everybody was exactly the same, which the concept that we use of normal implies, that graph wouldn't look like a normal curve. It would just be a line, right? But instead we're diverse, we spread out and we have all these outliers and the outliers matter. And honestly, Everybody in this hotel this weekend, in spite of the fact that we kind of maybe clump on one side of the general population, we have our own normal curve, right? We have people who are outliers one direction and outliers another direction. I have a friend who likes to describe herself as French vanilla because she's like, no, I'm mostly vanilla, but I'm kind of kink adjacent. And I'm like, no, you're part of this world too. You know, if you have the love and the open and the interest, you're part of this world too. And you can embrace the term French vanilla if you want, but you're the out, you're an outlier and you have a place here too. But unfortunately in psychology, the, the idea of normal has been used to pathologize people for a long, long time. Historically, and even still today, there's always been an idea of what's normal and what's not normal. And it's usually culturally defined it's usually defined by the culture that's in power. It's often sexist. It's often racist. It is often uh, classist. So many things come up here. And so unfortunately, we do see that reflected in approaches to categorizing human behavior. The current way that we categorize human behavior is in a document called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And in 2013, the fifth edition of that was released. The first edition, 
I can't remember the year. Um, the first edition was many decades ago. It takes approximately 10 to 20 years to revise this document. And sometimes we'll get an interim revision that revises the text without revises, revising the categories. So DSM-4 came out almost 40 years ago. That's how long it took us to get from four to five. This is not a slow moving, a fast moving evolution. So this was a big deal in the community that we actually got to a revision. Um, and they made some significant changes to what we consider on the abnormal side of the kind of normal abnormal dichotomy. So everything in the DSM ends with the word disorder, right? So you have major depressive disorder, you have bipolar disorder, you have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. That's where the D in OCD comes from. I know we all use the, the short version all the time. Um, and disorder implies that there is clinically significant distress. So that person is in pain. It's bothering that person enough that they maybe went and talked to a diagnosing professional or uh, somebody and or dysfunction. So it's causing problems in that person's life, right? Like it's impacting their relationships. It's impacting their ability to work. All, any, any area of their life might just be dysfunctional. So there's lots of people who have symptoms. Not everybody necessarily has the whole syndrome. Lots of people have depressed mood regularly, but are they experiencing distress and dysfunction? If not, maybe it's not depression, maybe it's something else. Mm -hmm. So, question on that. When they diagnose you with a disorder, do you fall within the normal of those that have the disorder? <laughs> <laughs> there is a normal on those people? There is. Okay. There absolutely is. And when you, when you read, so, the book is divided into categories of like, there's a chapter for depressive disorders, there's a chapter for uh, bipolar disorders. And in each category, there's like a box and it is like the diagnostic criteria. It's like the formula for diagnosing that thing. And then there's like 10 pages of text. And that 10 pages of text, which a lot of like, I, I mean, I teach undergrads, they don't read that text. They just go to the box, which is the summary. But the 10 pages of text describes to you all the research that if you look at enough of the research together, you start to see that normal curve for depression, right? So most people with this particular diagnosis fall somewhere in here, and then you have outliers who are maybe more functional and outliers who are less functional. Yeah, they're absolutely, and that's the, oh man, that's like the heart. Can you please come tell that to my undergrad students? Because they really struggle to grasp that concept that not everybody who has schizophrenia has the exact same experience. Not everybody that has depression has the exact same experience. Not everybody who has a fetish has the exact same experience. We know that from here. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk really quickly about how this specifically addresses, it's really what we're gonna talk about is how our community has been pathologized in the past and what some of the changes look like. So, but yes, there's always, 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 uh, there's always a spectrum in everything. That's what this book does, and it's kind of the it's the diagnostic bible for um, mental health clinicians. Um, it's also what's used for diagnosing mental illness in the medical community, um, and it lines up, especially in the newer version, it lines up really clearly with the International Classification of Diseases, which is what the medical community uses um, to diagnose illness. They're working basically to get the two of those exactly in line because it's causing confusion with the insurance companies if you have two different sets of coding. So the codes are the same. The diagnostic criteria are almost the same now. Um, okay, well, background information about my profession, less interesting. 
let's talk about a little bit about how things have changed related to some things that we get to play with at Frolicon in ways that the world isn't always great with. So for example, gender identity. The way that I describe the short version of gender identity, I could do a whole day on this, but my short version of gender identity is gender identity is your identity. So your sense of your own gender. Do I identify as masculine, feminine, agender? What works for me? I don't give a shit what label other people try to impose upon you. Your gender identity is yours. You get to own it. And if anybody has a problem with that, feel free to come to me and I'll tell you whatever it is you need to hear. That's a very kind of postmodern constructionist idea. Has the world always embraced that idea? Are we given a lot of freedom to experiment with gender? Not so much. Maybe this weekend, not so much in the rest of the world, right? We don't always do a good job. Does anybody know or imagine what the DSM has historically said about gender and people who transgress gender norms? There are a couple of people whose faces are like, oh God, I don't even want to imagine. Yeah. So historically, yeah, okay, so let me, let me make a caveat. All of my training has taken place within the last, I think it's about 35, 40 years since the DSM-4 was published. So all of my intimate knowledge of this book, because I had to read the entire thing almost to the point of memorizing, all of my intimate knowledge with it is in DSM-4. <laughs> the further back you go, the worse it gets. But from the very beginning, we have had some labeling in the DSM of people whose behavior and whose gender presentation doesn't match their assigned gender at birth. So whatever the doctor, you know, looks between the baby's legs and goes, congratulations, it's a, whatever that label was given when their behavior doesn't match that assignment that they get labeled usually with, historically it was gender identity disorder. That was DSM-4. Before that, they often would get labeled with homosexuality, which sexual identity and gender identity aren't the same thing, but DSM, like nobody understood that. So along comes 2013. It's the year 2013. We should be doing better than this, right? There's lots of discussions about why are we still diagnosing people as mentally ill for exploring their gender, for experimenting, for trying new things. Does anybody know what the change was? Did we get rid of it entirely? Yeah. Yeah, there's some sad shakes of the head happening. Yeah, a compromise was made. And you see that several times in this edition of the book. There were a lot of trans advocates on both sides of this argument about whether people were very clear about we don't want to be labeled gender identity disorder anymore, right? Nobody wants to be labeled disorder, right? There, I think there was kind of a clear understanding that the guidelines from APA about uh, work with trans people had come out. There was a really clear understanding of like, we don't see this as a mental illness. However, there is intense distress on the part of a lot of trans people. Why are trans people in distress? Because what we see in the mirror doesn't match who we are. Because what we see in the mirror doesn't match who we are. And also, <laughs> because people are assholes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be well, and you know, we talked about that idea of there's always distress and dysfunction. So there might be distress because I don't look the way I feel. There also might be dysfunction, not necessarily because I can't function in the world, but unfortunately, hiring practices are often intensely discriminatory against trans people. So here's a person who's having occupational dysfunction because they're living their truth. Yeah. And so the compromise that was put in there was that there would remain 
a diagnosis for gender dysphoria. Dysphoria refers to sadness, distress, dysfunction. So basically what it is, is it's a category that captures, is this person in distress and dysfunction? Not because they're trans, but is that experience distressing maybe because of the external influences or because they're going through a transition process and they are not yet able to live a life that matches their gender identity. So the hope is that this is something that through supportive therapy and moving people towards their goals can be resolved. Okay, why did we need to keep a diagnosis at all? Insurance company. Yeah. Testosterone is expensive. Surgery is very expensive. Health insurance doesn't want to cover any of it. They, health, first of all, health insurance will not cover anything unless you've written a diagnostic code on there. If this leaves the DSM, we don't have a diagnostic code for it anymore. So that's why the compromise decision was made there. Yeah. Other things that are in here are uh, there's less ambiguity about. And I'm really kind of proud of that because I think there was a possibility that the psychological and psychiatric communities were going to treat our community, especially around kink, in a much more ambiguous way. Right. I was worried. So um, very briefly, many of you may know about this. Sexual identity is another piece of this, another place of diversity, um, and I do a lot of work here. Um, we know that sexual identity really is about who we're attracted to. I think it's also about what behaviors, so I think about that sometimes in terms of sexual expression, but that's a place where there's been a lot of pathologizing, right? Homosexuality was a diagnosis. It wasn't even homosexuality disorder, it was just homosexuality. If you were gay, if you were queer, if you were anything other than basically straight, white, and married, you got this diagnosis. Anybody know when that left the DSM or want to take a guess, even with a decade? Go ahead. I think it was the DSM-4, it finally went away, but no, now that I'm thinking about it, no, it didn't. It, it did, it did. So um, this is a really, there's fascinating history about this. The, so originally it said, um, originally it was written, sexual orientation disturbance, homosexuality in brackets. So in 1969, at the meeting of the American Psychiatric uh, Association, which collaborates with APA on creating this book, um, a group of psychiatrists presented a panel and they were real secretive about what they were going to present. And they walked on stage to present this, this panel wearing masks, all of them wearing masks to hide their identities. And they proposed that homosexuality be removed from the DSM. This was such a threatening thing to do. It was so potentially disastrous to their careers that they had to hide their identities. Fortunately, they, we now know who they were and they're kind of heroes in the field. Um, but that's how dangerous this was, right? So it was proposed in 69. It was removed in the, um, the publication of DSM three. Yeah, that's a typo. Sorry for DSM three in 1973. Um, but interestingly, it wasn't until I think it was the revision of uh, DSM. So DSM 3R is just a text revision. There was still a line in there that says, so it's called sexual disorders, not otherwise specified. It's basically the catch all category. It's still referred to if somebody is distressed about being gay, that you could diagnose them with that. So yeah, in the three, it was it was downgraded to egotistonic, yeah, homosexuality. Yes, that's right. And then in the revision, it was changed. Yeah. 
fortunately in the four, it was re the reference to it was removed. So it's not even ex an example of, it used to be that it was an example of something that you would diagnose sexual disorder NOS for. It is no longer in there at all. And the AP has been really, really loud about like, no, this is not like we don't, we conversion. There's a lot of science that says that conversion therapy does not work. And in fact, it harms people. We do not do this. Yeah. Um, and yet there are laws being proposed in the state of Georgia that would prevent that from being legal and they keep getting voted down. They create this American Life episode about the removal. Yes, 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 yes. It's amazing. Okay, so let's talk about sex and kink. When I teach to students about diversity and sexuality, I try to break it up into little like chunks that they can get. So I talk about like, okay, biological sex when you're a baby and you, all you can do is eat, sleep, and poop and you have parts. And then I talk about gender identity and that grows and you figure out how you want to express your gender. And then you get your hormone rush and hormone poisoning. And then you're like, oh, look, I might be interested in sex. And you have to try to figure out how all your parts work. And then you figure out who you might want to point your parts at. Um, but hopefully, you don't, you know, hopefully you can do, learn to do that in responsible ways and you get adequate sex education in this country, please. Sorry, did I say that out loud? So much need for good sex education. We have this idea of like, we have this push to figure out who we want to pair with. And I think we've been talking about that in terms of sexual identity for a long time. We don't always talk and we certainly don't encourage young people to think about what kind of sex do you want to have? What feels good to you? What do you like? Now, of course, we're all sitting here because we're like, I like that question. Can we talk about that? But I think sexual expression, there's a huge, I mean, like, look at all the various different panels and toys you can learn to play with here and all this different stuff. There's so <laughs> much diversity in the realm of sexual expression. So I have to tell you about a really fun experience. One of the most fun things to do is I have a version of this slide and it says, when you think about sexual expression, what are some examples of diversity that occurred to you, right? And that's in little type at the top. And I ask that to students when I go teach about this stuff at like university, like gender and sexuality classes. And I have some of those, those pictures at the side, but I don't reveal them yet. And it's just a big empty slide. And I ask them to give me some examples. And they give me like, baby. Somebody said the other day, like, we're like, three stuff. I'm like, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> and then I bring up a list. And the list is basically like just stuff that happens. At, it's not even stuff that happens at Frolicon. Like they're not ready for that. It's like the, it's the edited version of a frolic, of a really good Frolicon weekend, right? And they're like, you just watch their eyes go like, and then maybe there's one of those, like there's some whispering at the back and they're like, no, you ask, you ask, no, you ask. What's a cuddle party? <laughs> But you know, there's some of them who are like on the phone, Google, search, yeah. yes, explore, get curious, learn about this stuff before you inadvertently end up in it and you don't know what you need to keep yourself safe or to ask about. We don't do a good job. And unfortunately, I think that that unknowingness has led to pathologizing stuff that people haven't talked about. So historically, the DSM had all these categories under a title, something called paraphilias. So a paraphilia was sexual, uh, not just a sexual dysfunction. So there's a whole other category for sexual dysfunctions, you know, like um, erectile disorder, um, low arousal, which is so poorly, like I can, I can yell about that one too. It's really poorly defined. So there's a, there's a female arousal and interest disorder. 
and it says um, significantly significantly low interest in sex. Who decides what's low? Significant. Well, and then and what's the mean? And how are you measuring? Like the science is bad here, people. Um, now that's not to say that somebody might not come to my office and say my libido is really low and I'm distressed by it. I'm like, okay, let's uh, let's understand that on the individual level. But this book is not about individuals. It's about means and it's about big numbers. So I still think there's like that that that's the first half of this chapter is the sexual dysfunction stuff. It's it comes off as pretty sexist and pretty heteronormative. I think we need to do some work there. I think Masters and Johnsons are, are rolling in their graves. I think we need some more science there too before the next edition of this, which like I said, we've got some time. It's gonna, there's gonna be a lot of arguments, so. But they did do a good job updating the second part of this. And I think it means a lot for our community. So the second part of this uh, sexual dysfunctions chapter is called the paraphilias. And historically those have been the places where people are like the, oh no, you're sexually sick stuff. Um, and so what they, what it used to say was that the labels just were the name of the thing. So these are words that we all hear a lot around here, like voyeurism, transvestic fetishism, fetishism. And it was all just the word, right? Remember how I told you these all were disorders and they all say major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder. In the old DSMs, they, it didn't say disorder. It just said voyeurism. The implication being that if you were a voyeur, you were in this category. Ow. Like, my, my, my question on that is, like, how would you even, like, e even if it was a disorder, like, I, I don't understand how, how somebody would even treat that. Like, it's, it, it seems like it's something that would be essentially a non-treatable issue. Well, and that's exactly where this is coming from. So one of the things that has happened over time is that um, the, uh, so the DSM-1, evolved from a list of observed, like an anecdotal list, an observed list of all of the mental illness that a doctor called Emil Kraepelin put together. And he wrote on there things like melancholia, which is the fanciest name for depression ever. And that was purely observation. It was things that he had seen in his practice that other people had talked about. And then in DSM-1, they started putting it together and talking about like, okay, you know, let's put together whatever research there is, but there, it wasn't science focused. As we have moved over time, the emphasis has been, look, if you want to propose a change to this document, you have to show up not only with a proposal written, but you have to show your work and you have to cite your references. So if you don't have the science in place, we're not making the change which is great when people start proposing disorders. So for example, uh, there was an internet use disorder proposed for the most recent revision. The problem was the science wasn't quite there. Now, that's not to say that it's not possible to use, to get uh, kind of addicted to the internet in a way that causes distress and dysfunction, is causing problems in people's lives, but they had conflated like using the internet for sex and using the internet for gaming and they kind of mushed all that together rather than having enough research in each different area. It's also the reason that we don't have a dis diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior, which is, a, I mean, that's the third rail of sexuality research because there's a lot of people who want to call anybody who really likes sex a sex addict, and I object to that strongly. But there are people who get engaged in patterns of compulsive behavior, compulsive meaning I can't not, it's too anxiety provoking. And we definitely need places of, you know, sex positive therapy 
around that. So I think we'll we'll see. But but the DSM has said, no, no, stop coming to us just with a title and some symptoms. You've got to have the science. So we're, what this is what happened with these disorders is, first of all, prove to me that it's a disorder. Prove to me that this is happening in the research. And show me your research. The problem was that anything that had creeped in through the back door of history lingered. So voyeurism lingered. Yeah. And I'll tell you what happened in a second, but I know there are comments or thoughts. Well, and part of, part of the challenge is that historically, the healthy view of these communities haven't been studied. Oh, no, not at all. Before homosexuality, the only studies about homosexuality were studies of groups of homosexual men who were so distressed they had checked themselves in there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a great study pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I like to make fun of Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud's research method was because I said so. Yeah. Yeah. How do you distinguish a disorder from a superpower? <laughs> That's a great question. I work in anxiety a lot, and so I joke about that a lot. Anxiety is both my superpower and my disorder. I'm not. I'm not late for things. Yeah. Well. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the the again, we're getting better about that. So, in order to diagnose anybody, you have to. That person needs to be in distress, or it needs to be significantly negatively impacting their functioning in the world. So, if it's a superpower, it's enhancing my functioning. Um. If not, also there's no diagnosis for nymphomania for you know for excessive interest in sex. Again, excessive is totally situationally or societally defined. So, but of course there are a lot of people who are very sex negative and concerned about compulsive sexual behavior in patients, and so it tends to fall under that sexual disorder NOS category. And I'm all for people getting the help they need, but I don't think that sex shaming is a useful part of that treatment. Superpowers always end up comparing the functioning in normal. Yeah, that's true too. But what's but but fuck normal, but fuck normal. Um, normal, and I and I don't mean that because I'm not. A, I mean I'm not a total anarchist, but I am an anarchist in the in the sense of we need to question everything. Sometimes normal is the thing that's hurting us. Sometimes the expectations of what you know that we've been given by the community we live in, by the family we had. Sometimes they're not the right thing for us. Sometimes they are not the way to mental health for us. So let me tell you what happened with the paraphilic disorders. The categories and the titles were rewritten in a way that's pretty co uh, coherent across all of them. And the theme that they really imposed on these was this, that you only have a diagnosable disorder if you are violating the consent of another. And the fetish community went, we told you. <laughs> and there is clinically, well, no, or there is clinically significant stress or impairment. The way that I, I kind of explain this is if you're violating the consent of, or, of another, it's kind of an automatic diagnosis. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Of course, all of you are nodding your heads because you're like, duh, we told you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also some pieces in there like, okay, let's say there's not a, a consent violation happening, but somebody is coming to a therapist and saying like, look, this is happening in my life. I'm upset about it. I think it's a problem. I'm not going to necessarily jump on the problem bandwagon, but I am going to look at like, okay, is this becoming something that is taking over your life? Is it excluding other relationships from your life? Is it excluding other sexual, is it becoming compulsive behavior? 
the way that they define this in the DSM is they call these uh, recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors generally involving non-human objects, the suffering or humiliation of oneself or one partners, or children or other non-consenting persons. However, so that's like the theme, that's like the, the keywords for this, but just like I could be, I could feel depressed one day, but not have depression. I could have all of these things other than violating somebody's consent and not meet the criteria for diagnosis because I could be functional, not in distress, not hurting other people, right? So this is what the, the categories, this is what the, the titles have changed to. They said, look, somebody can say, I am into exhibitionism. And a universal cheer went up from Frolicon. Um, however, I have the consent of the people involved. I go to the burlesque show and that's like, woohoo, there we go. And that that is different than having an exhibitionistic disorder, right? That's the guy who walks onto MARTA or a rail system in the trench. You know, that's, that's the stereotype, right? Um, because you're violating somebody else's consent. Mm -hmm. Does this distinguish between things that people can complain the problem with themselves versus complaining about somebody else? So it seems like a lot of the complaints about uh, paraphilia or whatever you're mm -hmm. fighting it is people complaining about other people. Not well, you would only diagnose the individual engaged in the behavior. So, so if they don't really like what their partner or the people down the next door are into, that doesn't count. No. Yeah, I, the diagnosis, of it is, is a diagnosis is a very specific thing. This has particularly been an interesting conversation to have in the psychological community since the election of 2016. There have been a lot of people who want to say, and this happens every year, but there's a lot of people who want to look at psychologists and be like, what diagnosis do you think so-and-so has? And of course, Donald Trump has been a particularly popular Subject for that question, and psychologists are like, nope, we can't, we don't do that. We do not diagnose people that we have not assessed ourselves. The temptation is real, people. But certainly... Let's just say I'm pretty confident he's an asshole. Yeah, asshole's not, a, asshole's not a diagnosis, so I can say that. Um, yeah, and, and, but in, in public forums, and so there was, there was one, I think there was one psychiatrist who wrote an article and made a pretty cogent argument about something. And it's like, okay, that's fine, but we don't do that because all you have are his public statements. And I'm not in any way defending the man, I swear to God. If you want to hear my opinions, please catch me afterwards and buy me a drink. But... I can't know unless I've asked my diagnostic questions and had a personal interaction with that person. The only time that you see people do that is in an area called psychohistory, where you take somebody who is no longer alive to be interviewed and you can look at like their whole, it's kind of like a literary history combination of psychology and, and history thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but so responsible diagnosis is a really important thing. And I think this is a really good example of it because imagine you are somebody who somewhere in your life, uh, I think somebody said that they help out with, with disability uh, claims, right? Our, our friend in the back who's a lawyer. Imagine that at some point, somebody heard something about, asked you something about your sex life and kind of saddled you with this label of fetishistic disorder. Just because you happen to mention to a psychologist in a disability assessment that you are in defeat. By the way, most common fetish in the world. Also not, uh, remember this piece, uh, arouses about a non-human object. 
feet aren't a non-human object, but it's still a fetish. And maybe you got somebody who doesn't know anything about this world and they saddle you with this label of fetishistic disorder. Anybody considering that claim going to be biased? Maybe, I don't know. In your professional opinion, influence the opinions of people. Yeah. 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 Bias is a human thing. The things that we don't know scare us. Responsible diagnosis is so important because those labels, when people apply labels to us, they follow us. And sometimes they inform how we see ourselves. And so throwing these around is dangerous. And that's part of why the DSM changed this, is that we need to only diagnose when there really is a problem and something we can and should address, right? Somebody's in defeat. That's not something I need to fix. Are they grabbing shoes off of people on the subway and licking their feet? Yeah, that's something we need to address. There's a behavioral modification that needs to happen there. But that's because they're violating the consent of another. Do people actually come into a therapist and say, um, hey, doctor, I, I, I think I might be an asshole. I need a diagnosis. Or I'm into something. You know, it's, it's like a woman who came in and said, well, my husband sent me in because I like pancakes. And the doctor says, well, nothing wrong with that. I like pancakes. He says, well, you got to come over to my place. i got closets for them. <laughs> I mean, you know, at what point do yeah. people actually come in complaining sure. about their their sexual thing it, it depends so if people self-refer to therapy and i think you're gonna i'm gonna get let you answer the second part of this if people self-refer to therapy it's probably at the point that it's that they've recognized that it's become a problem right they're they fl fly out of the house on a tidal wave of pancakes and they're like oh this might be a problem and so they come in either asking for reassurance that it's not or because they have an inkling that maybe the thing that their friends and family have been telling them for 20 years is a problem, <laughs> have, is a problem. The other way that people end up interacting with this. Uh, people place a lot of emotional value on what they perceive their diagnosis ought to be. Yes. My clientele often happens to be veterans. Um, yes. And so what they'll say to me is, I have PTSD. We'll know the DSM-5 will have, you know, they have A through F in mm -hmm. regards to the specific criterion for it. They don't need some of those, so they have general anxiety, they have major depressive, but they've spent the past 10 or 15 years going down with BFW relating to all their other veterans about how they all have PTSD. So they put a lot of particular focus on this is actually what I have. Yeah, well, and also there's a there's a cultural kind of a social acceptability like in that particular cultural group, PTSD is an acceptable thing to have. Like, especially in veteran communities, PTSD like a lot of people have PTSD, and and the the VA especially has worked really hard to kind of normalize mental health around PTSD exclusively, right? But it's much, and it's a hard sell, right? Mental health at the VA is a hard sell anyway. I know a lot of people who work there. Um, but so they're like, wait, if I don't have PTSD, and then you're kind of telling them, they're like, well, no, you just have a pre-existing or a related mental illness that just doesn't fit this particular category. But they're like, oh, no, I can't, I can't have that. You know, it's kind of like the doctor telling you, um, you're like, I have chicken pox. And they're like, no, it's shingles. And you're like, no, I can't have shingles. It's the same virus. Um, no, I can't have shingles because that doesn't fit my idea of who I am myself. Yeah. How many of these come down from court down to the guy on the Yes. That's the other way that people often come across a diagnosis because they have been required, well, by a, by a significant other maybe, um, or they have been required to do an assessment maybe because they're trying to access some kind of benefits. I do some social security um, uh, disability assessments. Um, or they... Uh, 
you know, maybe there's some court mandated therapy is a really tricky thing. Um, a limited number of people do it. Mandated therapy, like required therapy doesn't really work very well. Um, it's much better to think of it in terms of like mandated behavioral modification. Um, cause it just doesn't, the relationship isn't, the, doesn't work the same way if you are required to be in my office. Um, can you still do an assessment? You can still do an assessment and you can still do a diagnosis, but I'm going to be real conservative. And the biggest thing about assessment is what is the assessment question? Not every assessment looks the same way. So what is the assessment question? What does the, whoever's referring for the assessment need to know if the assessment is for ADHD and this person tells me something about their sex life, does the person that referred them to me need to know? Hell no, if this has no impact on whether or not this person has ADHD. According to DSM-5, mm -hmm. uh, if it is a non-consent, so we have a guy or more that yes. around and is co-exposing himself, does that assessment actually has to go through you? Or is it, because it's a non-consent, you, you, you fall directly under DSM-5? Uh, yeah, well, no, no, no. Only you have to be trained in diagnosis to actually do diagnosis. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There are new, there are nuances. Yeah. So, so let me um, let me take one more question. And then we're gonna try to. I want to give you the end of this piece at least, and then we can do some more questions. Yeah. A lot of these characters, um, characteristics as worth fall into entire communities that are what we all know, like the BDSM right. community, right. or the um, you know the. Well, all the various communities we have with initials. Yeah, of initials. sure. These are communities of people who are supportive and, and recognize that, that they're okay. Yeah, kind of yeah. Thing. So how does that fit in? If they were all by themselves out somewhere, they might be regarded as, as a majorly sick fuck, you know? Right. They're well, and, and, and that's actually the change. So, so I'm sorry, you may have missed a little bit at the beginning. Um, that's actually really the change that has happened in DSM. So DSM limits... The diagnosis too, if you have violated the consent of another, or you are in significant distress yourself, or this is significantly impairing your functioning. If you are like, I mean, frankly, let's face it, many of us this weekend are, we have, let's imagine a fetish, pick your favorite, just keep it in your mind. Okay, we have a fetish. It might be a non-human object, so it meets that criteria. We have some really great sexually arousing fantasies. We could sit here and talk about them for an hour and be super happy. Um, but we enact those fantasies with consenting others. Sorry, somebody just sighed really deeply, and I'm like, yes, I love it. You're thinking about your fantasy. Um, we enact those with consenting others. We are not in distress. We're actually a pretty joyful bunch about it, hopefully, this weekend, right? And we're functional. You know, we're all sadly going back to work on Monday or Tuesday, maybe give yourself a day to recover. I think that's good self-care. I love to talk about self-care. So go back to work on Tuesday. Tell them the doctor told you to. So tempting. I so tempting to just have a notepad all weekend and be like, doctor's orders, go back to work and don't wait take the day off on Monday. Um, I'm so popular. Um, so we don't meet the criteria, right? Which, oh, by the way, if you ever pick up and read the DSM, which don't, uh, it's bad for your mental health. You don't have every diagnosis in it. I have to tell my undergrads this every semester because they're all human characteristics. You don't have the diagnosis until you are at the outlier of that characteristic. These are all human experiences. Being depressed, feeling depressed is a human experience. Major depressive disorder is the extreme version of that human experience. Yeah. Okay, so what happened here is that the labeling changed. 
that we no longer say voyeurism is the diagnostic label. We say voyeuristic disorder, which is a particular kind of experiencing that in which we might engage in that behavior with a non-consenting other and or be dysfunctional in our lives or be so distressed about that thought that it's impairing us. That's the person who, frankly, it's the person who probably hasn't found their way to Frolicon. That's the person who would qualify for this diagnosis and who might seek treatment, who might come in to, let's say, my office and be like, I think I'm crazy. I really want to watch people have sex. Now, if they come to my office, they might get a different reaction to a lot of other offices. I'd be like, and? I heard you tell me that you want to watch people have sex. I'm still waiting for the why you think you're crazy part. Have you heard of the internet? Because under the old category of just, if you want to watch people having sex, you're crazy, then every person on the internet is crazy. That's a huge industry supporting that. Right, exactly. There are plenty of industries that, are support, that support our crazy man. So there are a couple of places where obviously this becomes a little different, right? And I want to talk about this example because I think it's one that we play with here. So there's a category for pedophilic disorder which the text says involves sexually arousing fantasies, sexual urges, or behaviors involving sexual behavior with a prepubescent child or children. That's the text from the DSM. Okay, look at this image right here. Does fantasizing about this image meet the criteria for pedophilic disorder? I have one person shaking their head, two person, okay, so I'm getting some no's. Why, why not? Denoted criteria and a denoted text? Well, okay, talk about your answer. Talk about that thought process. So my thought process is essentially like the, the sexually arousing fantasies, sexual urges involving sexual behavior with a prepubescent child or children. Mm -hmm. um, like if you, that is clearly a grown woman. Yes. <laughs> wearing, wearing a outfit that suggests that she is a school age child. Right, implying school girl. Yes. Sure. Um, so, so if you are fantasizing about somebody who you are fully aware as a conscious human mm -hmm. that they are an adult, it doesn't fit that criteria. Yeah. If you are fantasizing about them and replacing them like in your mind with, mm -hmm. they are actually kind of a child and that's what I'm getting from that costume. And even if that were true, I still would hesitate to diagnose yeah. because I would go back to that is an adult mm -hmm. who has given consent. Yeah, if you can make that, that distinction. I would check and make sure this person wasn't actually having sex with people who were too young to consent. Mm -hmm. But the fantasies, things we do in fantasy are not always things we do in reality. So I want to I want to find out are those is somebody crossing that line? I am not saying that I am not concerned about people who have and and fulfill their desires for children. That is a concern and it is not a line that I am willing to cross or even debate crossing. However, the majority of people who are interested in age player like no no, I know she grown. Yeah. I know he grown. I know they grown. I want that grown person. I want to play pretend. But I think also if you were to share that with somebody who was not as educated about that idea of fantasy versus reality, very often when people hear the urges, I, I had this remarkable experience. I don't work 
So I work in this area, but I don't work a lot with people. Like if that's if you've violated that boundary, you're probably going to be a registered sex offender and you get in mandated therapy. I don't do mandated therapy. I don't work with sex offenders. I don't work with that kind of population. Um, but I had this remarkable experience with a young woman who honestly many people probably would diagnose in that way. This was somebody who was a victim of ritual sexual child abuse and who came to me many years later and I'm sorry, trigger warning for many people. I probably should have brought that up first. But this person came to me and said, I think I fit this category. I am afraid of that because when I see a child, my first thought is in that direction. I don't want to act on it, but I was trained that way as a child. So my first thought is about sex. And my second thought is, fuck. And a person hearing that, all they hear is, this person has sexual thoughts about children. And this person gave me the gift of getting past my fear of that, of like, oh God, oh God. And hearing a person who was like, help me, I am struggling because I have a partner who I love and I want to have a baby at some point in my life. And I don't want that for my child. I do not want to reenact my childhood. This was the, one of the most thoughtful, amazing, intentional people I've ever met. And I think, I, again, I'm not defending the rights of pedophiles ever. But we have to remember that there's always that normal curve and that there are people who had a learning experience that taught them things that are not true in their world and they're working to get away from it. I actually really read an article about the guy who was going through the same experience. Yeah, it's yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah, and that, that, that you would be shamed and rejected by your therapist for your early learning history. Yeah, and I think that we all often face that in our community. And unfortunately, there are many, many horror stories. I'm always so grateful for the members of our community who end up coming through my door as a therapist. First of all, they made it back through my door after whatever horror story they is that it is that they tell me about a previous therapist that they shared, like they came out to, they shared something about their life, and that therapist had like the wrong reaction. I'm so sorry on behalf of my profession. No, that's why I, mean, I started going to therapy specifically. I'm like, I'm not about taking any chances. I'm specifically looking for somebody who looks LGBT-friendly yeah. and, and alternate faith-friendly because this is the South yeah. and I wasn't taking your chance. Right. But, and then it's so hard because it's possible you might find somebody who meets all those criteria and then just personally, like interpersonally, isn't the best fit for you because your energies don't click and it's, uh, yeah, it's really frustrating. So. The, so, I don't know if this is the same article. The one that I'm thinking of is called, is literally titled, You're 16. You're a pedophile. You don't want to hurt anyone. Oh, what do you do now? I'll have to look that up later. Uh, it's, a, it's medium. Okay. It's a, it's a oh, fabulous, yeah, I love medium. It's a fabulous article oh, about yeah. a young man who was struggling with this and, and trying to reach out to others yeah. for support. And feeling like they have yeah, so yeah. few resources. Well, I yeah. It was actually about a, a, an adult man who was like, oh, like okay. he was an adult, he was in a relationship with a woman. And kind of going through that same experience, like, I, I, I know I'm a pedophile, I'm attracted to kids. Children and I'm with this woman I love and I want to have kids. Yeah, family, but I don't want to hurt my children. And, and so people choose to do their their own work. One of the really interesting things about about the subject of most of the subjects of this article is that is that the group that he started and most of, like many of these groups have a very strict rule of we will give you all the support in the world as long as you've never touched a child. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they all very strongly identify themselves as 
pedophiles. Yeah. Like, use that label for themselves. And, oh, that's oh, that's really amazing. Because I think, unfortunately, very often in the in the psychological community, there's pr- and there's probably a small group of psychologists or therapists that I am not aware of that's working with those folks. I hope yeah. and embracing that idea. But unfortunately, if you if you walk up to most of the mental health community and you ask about this diagnosis. They will say something like, I don't work with those people. And they will have, there will be some of that yuck face that happens because they have a stereotype of, because unfortunately a lot of times this happens in like forensic, probably like people are mandated therapy or they're in prison and they're having to do this. People don't want to do this work. They're not willing to embrace a person and understand this is one part of who a person is and that they may be struggling. I'm so glad to hear that somebody's doing that work. But again, it's a place where I would hesitate like, okay, this is a person who has never violated another person's consent, do I apply this diagnosis? You can apply, like people can choose their own identities always. Do I apply this diagnosis? So, mm-hmm. There's whole, there's whole segments of populations that are into this, like the, the NAMBLA thing, the green choir boys. None of these people are turning themselves in for therapy. They're getting caught out for, oh, yeah. and, you know, yeah. and it's like, and unfortunately those that those groups people who are violating others people who are hurting others make it harder for individuals who are saying i don't want to hurt anybody i'm having these thoughts thoughts are existing in my head that i want to work on yeah and so the visibility of like the catholic church scandals and nambla really make it difficult to say no no i am i'm a different like I'm, I'm. This is my experience, but this is it's different. I'm having a different kind of experience here, and I need to work on it and be a different kind of person. Yeah, wow, that's so hard. First of all, I think it's really important to separate our community from this. Not to say that I mean somewhere out there, there's somebody who crosses the line. There always is. I think we're very protective of our community because we want to look good to the outside world so that they don't fear us and treat us as monsters. There are going to be people who do consent badly even in our community. Um, even though I think that the rest of the world can learn a lot about communication and consent from our community. Well, I think in that case, it's our responsibility as a community to put our foot down and be vocal in those situations Absolutely. and say, no, this person doesn't fit our standard and Absolutely, absolutely. If you see something, say something, and, and, and have communication and work for restorative justice, and all of those things are important. Acknowledging that that can exist. You know, I also, too, I wrote a chapter with Eli Sheff about uh, what's the difference between BDSM and intimate partner violence, really trying to educate, like, health professionals when they see it. But the, when, we t- when we talk about it here, everybody's like, yeah, we know the difference. And we're like, we know you guys know. But then there are people who are like, okay, yeah, but I had a kinky relationship that was also traumatic and violent. And we're like, okay, yeah. So now let's talk about what do we do when that happens? Because it can. Both of those, you know, those are overlapping things that can happen. Um, and so, you know, how do we handle it when those things happen? The other thing that's interesting and weird and frustrating about the DSM is that it has this specific category for prepubescent child or children hemophilia, which would be the adolescent version here, is not mentioned in the DSM. It's in the like sexual disorders NOS issue. So thank you for your yuck face. I appreciate that. Yeah, it tends to be grouped in with pedophilia, but specific, like somebody could argue that and be like, no, I'm into like teenage, I'm into like 13 year olds, not prepubescent children. Although the age that 
of puberty is, is decreasing rapidly. Yeah. Average age about eight in No, it's, it's, the average is actually between 11 and 12. It's a little different for boys versus girls. It's between 11 and 12 for girls and uh, uh, 12 and 14 for boys, I think, the last time I looked. But we get outliers of as early as, like, I think some of the significant outliers are like five, but yeah, we do get significant outliers at like eight and stuff. The women I know with kids, like the girls aren't making it to 10 before. Yeah, it's, impre- it's amazing. It's amazing. It's weird. I was going to puberty at eight, and then my sister didn't, I didn't hit it until I was 14, almost. Yeah, there's a really, there's a, the range is. Yeah, the range is really wide. 13, 14 year old girls that want to have sex with grown men because they don't want to have sex with 12 and 13 year old boys. <laughs> but is that a good idea? Yeah, I know, but it's a thing though. Neurologically, a 13 year old brain and a 25 year old brain are incredibly different. Bodies might be ready, brains are not. Your brain isn't actually fully done growing until about 25 years old. So even, you know, even that, that kind of makes an argument for, like, even at 18, like, okay, at 18, you do what you want with your body, but dating that 40-year-old probably isn't a good idea. No, I'm not. I, I mean, listen, I've made as many mistakes as the next person, um, and I'm not saying that it can't work out, but I think it's l- worth educating ourselves about, like, hey, my brain's not done cooking yet. I'm probably going to make some mistakes along the way. And we should just be educating them about how to make them safely and without long-term consequences. Um, but I do think there's also this tendency for us to sexualize youth in a big way. And I, and also then we have, there probably are, there are a lot of states where the age of consent varies. So they could have put in there that hebophilia is fantasizing about somebody under 18, but then there would be, be states where they're like, that's legal. It used to be 13 in Georgia. Right, exactly. 16 now. So the fact that it's not included though just bothers me. Okay, so I want to, I want to give you some the information about our, our community and what's in here. So there is a category for sexual masochism disorder and sexual sadism, sadism disorder. Interestingly, the DSM does a lot better, at least knows at least enough about the difference to differentiate the two because the International Classification for Diseases just has a category for sadomasochism. Like they're the same thing. And the description is terrible. It's like two lines. It's so bad. But again, in order to be diagnosed with the disorder, you must have acted on these issues with a non-consenting person. So hopefully, knock on wood, pray to all the gods, there's nobody who has met these criteria in this hotel this weekend, right? Um, Because we're getting consent, because we are functioning in our lives and we're having healthy relationships and we're making this happen. So this is the big message that I always want to end up on for everybody, which is that being kinky is not, does not mean you have a fetishistic disorder. Having a fetish does not mean you have a paraphilic disorder. Having many of them, having many fetishes, having many kinks, being the biggest sadist in the world, and there's some of them in this hotel and some of them are my friends, doesn't necessarily mean you have a disorder, including one of them whose self-professed example is, oh, I'm an asshole. <laughs> like, yeah, that's my diagnosis of him. He's an asshole, but does not have paraphilic disorder. And that's really important. And I, the reason I still present on this even six years later is it's really important for me to know that because my fear is that anyone in this community that I know and love will go to a therapist 
not somebody like me who really should know better, but somebody who doesn't know better. Interestingly, when this all came out, they did tons of trainings on like the DSM has been updated. Here's what you need to know. In not one of those that I went to, did anybody mention this category? I'm like, really? That got updated too. My fear is that any one of us will go to a therapist about our depression, our anxiety, our frustration with work, communication issues with a partner, and what that person will get zeroed in on, because we'll be honest, and that person will get zeroed in on, oh, well, you have a fetishistic disorder. No, me and my fetish are perfectly happy together. Thank you very much. But that bias really can influence that interaction with that person. And all of a sudden, we're spending a lot of time and a lot of money to focus on something that is not the work that we need to do. So what I want to do with this is I want to empower people with information to argue back with that person and be like, you know what? What diagnosis did you give me? You're wrong. I don't meet the criteria for that. What questions do people have? I have a bunch of other stuff that we can talk about, but, you know, whatever. Um, what, what, like, just kind of future reference and everything, how, how sure. do you sure. know about kind of introducing that kind of thing? Because, like I said, I do very specifically want to go into sex therapy yeah. and helping people, and this is definitely one of the uh, things I want to be able to yeah. talk to people yeah. about. And, like, how, how do you approach that, especially when you're dealing with, like, a baby kingster and things yeah. like that? Cause I, I, I have my little baby kingster and I'm trying to deal with him and just be gentle and, and just how do you really approach that from, from that standpoint and kind of ease people into something that they seem interested in? Sure. It's funny because I feel like I, I cheat um, and that I don't have to do that so much anymore because I have this kind of, it's, it feels like a privileged position at this point. Um, I think I, I told you guys at the beginning, this community built my practice. Um, I was working part, I was working full time at a university and I had this private practice on the side. So I was doing like two, three clients a week. Um, and a member of this community got my card and they were like, oh my God, you're poly and kink friendly. Can I have some cards? Give them to everyone. And so just as I was trans transitioning out of working full time, all of a sudden all these people in our community had my cards and I had all the referrals I needed to build my business. Um, so as a result of all of that, and this is my, my cards always said poly and kink friendly. But I, as I was building my website, I just put all the language in there. Like it talks about multiple identities and polyamories and all like all the stuff that I do all the time. So I am not, because some therapists feel like they kind of have to have it be like they are poly and kink knowledgeable and friendly, but it's not the front facing part of their business, maybe. Um, I never had that problem. So if anybody looks me up, they're going to see oh, this is the person I can talk to about that. And most often my clients choose me because like they'll call me. They'll be like, hi, I called because you're the poly-friendly therapist. So I'm like, okay, no problem. But it means that I don't always have to, I don't have to be the person bringing it up and that person will bring it up. and be like, so what do I do if I think that's true? But like in my personal situation now, I was, we were talking and I was bringing up my interesting key. Mm -hmm. and it was just kind of almost like a puppy dog. It was so adorable. Oh my God, he, yeah. he, he just kind of like, there was just like the stop and he cocked his head <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, we've hit a nerve and you've seen interested. So. Yay. Oh, that's so cute. 
Um, yeah, and so sometimes things that I, sometimes, because I, the language that I use is so infused with this, you know, like I use partner all the time. So part of it is that we flag, right? Think about it. We flag each other all the time, right? I was in a class and there were two people behind me and then there was another couple sitting kind of a catty corner to me and midway through the class, the, the woman to the side, I watch human interactions all the time. The woman over the side of me, she leaned over to the side and she went, do you want, like I heard this in, my, in the side of my ear, do you rock climb? And I'm like, this is not related to this class whatsoever. This other person. But, and the woman like behind me, she clearly nodded back to her. She's like, I saw you. I saw you the other day at the gym. Um, and it was, and so then they had, I, I overheard their conversation later and they were like, I noticed you at the gym. They had noticed because one had a metal collar on. And, you know, they had like, no, other people notice it all the time, but they'll say something like, how, something kind of really generic, like, how pretty. And then sometimes people will be like, I really like your collar. And it's like, oh, yeah, like, just flat. Yeah, like, like sorry, where my poly heart. And sometimes people will say, oh, that's so pretty. And other times people will say, like, they'll be like, I really like your necklace. And I'm like, I got you. I got you. Right. And so, yeah, like, my website flags like crazy. My language flags like crazy. I met somebody in a totally not professional interaction. Um, several weeks ago, I was in like a day and a half long workshop. And by the end of it, the presenter and I had both figured out, it was a yoga workshop. It had nothing to do with this world. By the end of it, we had figured out that we were both poly and kinky and had friends in common without <laughs> discussing it at all. And we're definitely going to an event together later in the year because now we're friends. Um, but you know, we could kind of, we flag in our language. And so I think that's helpful. And then hopefully we have lots more people. I try to cultivate people in my life who I can talk about like, what are the things that you like? And you can tell me. And it's also cultivating how we are with people. I will look for him next year, but he lives in Florida now. Aww, vacation next year. Yeah, we get a lot of that with pentagrams, but um, mm -hmm. it's one of those things people say, ah, I like your yeah. jewelry. Yeah. It's blessed. Yeah, that's right. But my, it was my late wife who coined the term polyamory in 1990. Mm. And so our community was really pioneers in this. Absolutely. Whole model for all this stuff but our we our community was just torn apart in the early 90s um, uh, when the the group of girls who grew up in our community all approximately the same age all had their um, rite of passage about the same time and they were all put through the thing and they were told by their mothers and all that well now you are you are free you're a woman you can determine your own sexuality, you know, and all the stuff was given to them. Well, their own sexuality was that there was a, a, a very um, a roguish and uh, popular guy in his mid-30s who all of the older women were, were lining up for it. Mm. And so these teenage girls decided that they were going to trip him and beat him to the floor. And they were in the 14, 15-year-old range. And he wasn't actually a member of exactly, he was just sort of around the edges, but um, but that created a huge scandal that just tore the community mm. apart with accusations that he was a child abuser and all this stuff. Uh. And those of us who were responsible were asking these girls, look, are you being abused? Are you being in any way? They said, no, we did this on purpose. We're intentional. We know what we're doing. We wanted this guy and the rest of you should just butt out and leave us alone. And that, were, it, it became a huge battle of people who sided with the girls who were accused of supporting child abuse. Yeah. And it, it was just, it never did quite resolve itself. Eventually, the girls all grew up and, and still to this very day, you know, maintain this is one of their decisions that they were quite yeah. happy with. You know.
communities are so difficult, you know. I, I think we see that there's there's something every so every it kind of cycles around. I don't know how long the cycle is, but something comes up and it tries to blow the community apart and we don't always have tools for dealing with it or even our best tools seem like peeing into a fire. And there's so much pain and hurt and fear, I think, because we want to, especially when we're in a community that is kind of sidelined and, and oppressed by others, like this is my community, this is my home. I don't want to lose it, but also I'm struggling to figure out what are my values and who do I side with. And I, I feel like we're seeing that an awful lot in in around things like, for example, siding with, you know, how do, how do I pick uh, in, you know, this, this ugly end of a relationship? And I'm feeling torn between friends. And I think particularly in the era of the Me Too movement, I think we're feeling a lot of that. Um, I had a, a client in this past year whose child was accused of inappropriately touching his girlfriend. Both kids are under 18. Not by much, but both are under 18. So they're kids, they're figuring out their boundaries. And I think there was a little remorse. I suspect there's a little, I don't really know what happened because obviously I wasn't there. But, but the parent is my client. And he's sitting in my office torn apart because here is this guy who sees himself and feels so progressive and who had been ranting about the, um, the Christine Blasey Ford and the, the Supreme Court nominee. Like he was so hot under the collar about that weeks before and such an advocate for her. And only weeks later, he is sitting in my office feeling so torn apart because on the one hand, he wants to support the victim in this situation, any victim. And on the other hand, his child, his precious baby is being accused of something that probably was a miscommunication and a consent conversation issue but because of the involvement of angry parents has now escalated to the involvement of police. There's nothing, by the way, there's nothing, there's F all I can do in that situation other than care. Um, but it's another of those situations where like a community gets really hot under the collar and angry about things and everybody stops being able to step back and think, how am I really, how are things going? I just realized we've gone way over time. I'm so sorry. I know people have to get to things and I don't, I want to be respectful of the time of the next presenters, but I'm happy to answer questions and talk to anybody about anything. Um, I know I mentioned at the beginning of the, um, of the uh, presentation, if people want to uh, look at the task, it's just div44cnm is the website for the task force that links to the uh, uh, da -da -da petition. Um, and um, I'm come on in. I'm I'm wrapping up. I'm sorry. I'm um, no, no, no. Please do. Please, please make me move my and stop talking to these wonderful people. So the information is there for that, and I've got a. You can sign it on paper here if you want. Also, there's my information if you need me at all. You have been listening to episode 278 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. Join us next week when we present Lila Rose, model and activist. Mm -hmm.